This podcast covers mature, intense, morbid, and sometimes just scary stuff. Listener discretion is advised. Writing obituaries can be tricky, especially if your subject is still alive. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we cover topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm Elise Willems. And I'm Jessica Vasami. Controversial Jamaican political activist Marcus Garvey, born August 17th, 1887 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica, died on June 10th, 1940 in London in a way that some might describe as being literally murdered by words. Garvey had suffered a stroke in January of 1940, which left him mostly paralyzed. In May of that year, the Chicago Defender published a premature obituary memorializing Garvey. Whether they did it based on a rumor or by sheer accident is unclear, but what is known is the drastic effect it had on Garvey. Now living in London, Garvey read this obituary that was accidentally posted or whatever, even though he was still very much alive. (laughs) And the obituary described him as broke, alone, and unpopular, (laughs) which honestly, I can relate. (laughs) Jeez. This apparently threw Garvey for a loop, to put it lightly. Yeah, allegedly this caused Garvey like immense stress and duress, which in turn caused him to experience another stroke. And this time he really did die. WTF. Yeah, we couldn't find any information on whether the Chicago Defender just reprinted the same obituary again, (laughs) but with a few updates, you know, unclear. But what we do know is that while rare, this isn't the only instance where an obituary has unintentionally or unknowingly been printed while its subject is still living. And this is by nature of the fact that it is now common practice for media outlets and publications to pre-write and bank obituaries for notable public figures. These pre-written obituaries, which are also called advanced obituaries, are in today's fast-paced online world, for better or worse, kind of a necessary measure to keep a leg up in the instantaneous around-the-clock news cycle. Everything moves so, so fast. It could slow down if it wanted to. (sighs) It could. Not not that... AI is now a thing too. Oh, God, I know. I like it's only going to accelerate even mm-hmm, more. Mm-hmm. But there are there are still some people who are fighting the good fight, right, Jess? <laughs> yes, there are. Uh, one of which, uh, her name is Marguerite Fox. She's one of the New York Times' most well-known former obituary writers. Has spoken a lot about the process of writing advance obituaries versus writing them the day of. Yeah, because they still do write them as someone dies, but. Mm -hmm. Fox said, for me and most of the time's other staff obituary writers, a majority of our time is spent writing breaking news obituaries known as dailies. But it is the advances written in hurried stolen moments between our daily headlines that keep us up at night. That's so haunting. That's such a haunting quote. And I think a lot of these obituary writers, too, at some publications, they they don't just write obituaries. They do other pieces for the papers, too. Yeah, it's just like them keeping them up at night. It's just like, oh, God. But these daily obituaries used to be the norm. So back as recently as like 1999, the Washington Post still treated death as a daily breaking news uh, and and wrote obituaries as needed, though they did start filing away some of the big ones. (laughs) Yeah, ultimately they evolved and then really started to lean into the completely pre-written obituaries. And as of recently, they have around 900 advanced obits on file. 
which you can compare this to the New York Times, which has almost 2,000, and the Hollywood Reporter, which as of 2021 had logged around 800 advances for notable figures in the film and television industry. Mm, that's weird. That's weird to know if I was like a, a huge person to know like, huh, one of them might have, like, what, what, what is mine about, you know? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we get into that, but I think it's also, it's like how you look at it too. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, we'll talk about that later too, but like, to be one of those only 800 people, like that's pretty true. Yeah. That's a pretty small club to be in. It is. And in yeah. one of the more notable obituaries, the post pre-stocked was for Queen Elizabeth II. Which I'm sure every publication around the world did too. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. But when the post got the word, the queen's health was in decline, they did an update to this pre-written obit. They acted fast, and the final version was published one minute after the news broke of her death. It's almost, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's almost like, where's the humanity? But yeah. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't but know. But then it's, in some ways, it's chock full of humanity. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think if you talk to the obit writers, which I, I was telling you before the show, Jess, but there's a New York Times documentary called Obit about the department there. And None of them are callous people who they all care a lot about their subjects and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, while the Post, you know, got theirs out one minute after the news broke of her death, uh, the Guardian's obituary for the Queen was a decade in the making and hit around 7,000 words. It's a lot. These scripts don't even. <laughs> I know. 7,000 <laughs> words. Yeah, it's, it's a lot for an obituary. And I think they considered this, you know, Queen who had served decades and decades to be you know, worth it. And people, I think, wanted that out of ob- obituary. Oh, absolutely. Especially for her. Yeah. And to really get her full life story. Mm-hmm. And really word count shouldn't be the signifying factor of someone's life and whether they were important or not. But someone who has a higher profile tends to get a bigger spread. You might get more photos or a wordier piece. Yeah. And to have your obituary written in advance, you got to meet some like exclusive criteria. So you're you're generally a, a well-known public figure or have some degree of celebrity, presidents, monarchs, um, famous celebs are among those considered. And let's face it, you know, being old as my underwear helps too. What a funny joke about your underwear, Jess. Look at my underwear. It's all, yeah, I know. <laughs> Sometimes the subject might have known or terminal health problems. So they're, the publication says, yeah, of course we have to prep for this. They could die anytime. But then... There are the tragic, untimely deaths that no one can prepare for, right? Mm -hmm. Young Hollywood celebrities come to mind, those who maybe died of a drug overdose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Heath Ledger, Amy Winehouse, you Uh, know? Yes. Or maybe someone who has taken their own life. Yeah, like uh, Robin Williams. That was Mm -hmm. was rough. Um, Mm -hmm. Robin Williams committed suicide at age 63 in the New York Times, had no pre-written obituary plan for Williams, which makes sense because his death truly was a shock to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. The editors of the Times learned of his death just before 7 p.m. And that's an hour after the writers file their daily work. So definitely overtime. Oh, yeah. They scrambled, namely David Itzkoff, the culture reporter at the time. Who coincidentally wrote Robin, which is sort of considered to be one of the preeminent biographies of Robin Williams. Hmm. Yeah, Itzkoff, with some help from his colleagues, wrote a 1,500 front-page-worthy obituary of Williams at a blistering speed. I'm sure it was like, not that, you know, not to say like some are harder or easier, but I feel like Robin Williams would just be, I feel like it would flow out of you in a way. 
Yeah, but it's, I, oh gosh, I under, watching this documentary, especially, and you're seeing how these writers, they're so, they hit all these writer's blocks and walls because they're so afraid of getting a person's life wrong. Oh, you're they're right. S- not even just factually, that. but they're afraid that they're not going to do them justice in how they encapsulate their life. And to me, it is, it's such a, it would be such a stressful cross to carry. That is not something you know? I would absolutely want to do, no. As, especially if it's someone you admire, like Robin Williams. I would mm-hmm. feel, oh, gosh, I need to figure out how to completely, perfectly represent his life. Yes, so yes, because while you have so many wonderful things to say, and, you know, especially if if you were a fan, I, I, a lot of us were, it's like, even then, you're right, but is it enough? Did I capture everything because this person was so incredible? Yeah, I've never performed a eulogy. I've officiated a couple of weddings now, and it's sort of similar where it's such a monumental thing, and you worry about how, how am I making this exactly what it needs to be? Am I covering everything that needs to be covered to really mm-hmm. and truly do justice and honor to these people? Mm-hmm. And if this is a lasting legacy or piece of it, I would feel that same kind of scrutiny and anxiety about it. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, death, though, we talked about, you know, suicide illness. It can also come to the news cycle in other sudden ways. The deceased may be harboring a hidden severe illness, rare, but Chadwick Boseman, I think, was so surprising and shocking to people who even knew him personally and closely. Oh, for sure. Um, His was shocking. and Or like David Bowie. Yeah, David Bowie Mm -hmm. was mind-boggling to me because a friend of mine, we had both listened to his the last album that he released before his death. Mm-hmm. And while we were listening to it, we had a conversation where we we specifically said to each other, man, if we didn't know any better, it would sound like this is David Bowie's, like this saying, you know, oh, this is me uh, saying goodbye and me coming to finality with the end of my life. Really? It really felt like that to us listening to it. And then sure enough, it was not too long after that he died and we we couldn't believe it. But when death does occur suddenly and without warning, it can become a scramble for the obituary author or department. But on the other hand, if the obit writer can prepare a piece well in advance, they can put together a more nuanced, comprehensive picture of the deceased person's life. Yes, and also make it unique. Obituaries used to be pretty formulaic, and now, especially in the bigger publications, a well-rounded obituary serves as more of a biography. So like ask any journalist who covers obituaries and they will tell you that modern obits are a focus on life and not death. Yeah, obituaries used to be a bit more form where I would say so-and-so died on this day. They were born on this day. They Mm -hmm. died because of this and they leave behind these people. Yeah. But obituaries now, the focus is on life and who this person was, what they did and what, what they're leaving behind. And then the death seems almost secondary. I it. I like that though. Me too. I like, you know, it's we don't. I mean, God, you, this could be an ever-ending can of worms. We because we don't know what's after. You might as well focus on what we do know in the life that they led here. Yeah, and so. and would when you're gone, would you want people focusing on your death? No, <laughs> right? no, no, no. You want them focusing on your life, so it, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, to once again quote Marguerite Fox, an advanced obit seems practically to guarantee its subject eternal life. We talked before this podcast, but man, she has such a way with words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She really does. Yeah. 
uh, no doubt, um, because in this advanced obit, the author is genuinely able to take the time and depth to really capture a person. They fact check, and then they can take these kind of meandering paths, diving into who that person was. Yeah, that's an art form. It really mm-hmm. is. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's that's also an, uh, an aspect I didn't think about is like the fact checking, which is uh, critical. Yeah. And I also think there's something to be said about a really good obituary where because obviously I think it becomes really difficult when somebody dies. You want to present them in a really glorified light. Sure. But people are complicated. People don't always do the best of things. And sometimes you have to remember them and you have to remember the bad, too. Mm-hmm. And just, these really great writers do that. Oh, 100. That is so accurate. And and I love that. Um yeah, and 9-11 did a lot to change the voice of obituaries, particularly the way that the New York Times handled things. Oh, yeah. Over the course of several months, the Times published short narrative obituaries as part of a series called Portraits of Grief on each of the nearly 3,000 people killed that day. And they didn't write them as these form pieces. Mm-mm. No, the Times writers sought to like fully remember these people. Ultimately, there were over 2,400 portraits included that pulled threads from the nuances of the lives lost, which is so incredibly thoughtful and wonderful. And what a what a lift too. And it, it, unprecedented. So much work. Yes. Right? Yes. Like and also to be doing it from the paper, the the foremost paper in the city that was devastated by it. Mm-hmm. Right? I know. Obituary expert Susan Sober talked with NPR in 2018 about Portraits of Grief, which they also, I think, made into a book, mm-hmm. saying everybody was recognized as a whole person and they had fun anecdotes. They made you cry. They made you smile. And to me, that was sort of when the tide turned in obituaries and people realized that you could bring a person to life and keep them alive, even in a short written bio. They were fabulous. Mm-hmm. Love it. And obituaries have gotten more honest and more just tell it like it is. And they tend to sugarcoat less and they try to paint an actual real picture of the person, warts and all, like we were saying. Like sometimes there's not some great aspects of a person. And that's okay because that's we're humans. Yeah. And that volume of death and devastation of 9-11 and the way obituaries were tackled, unfortunately, was a bit of a precursor to the tragedy left in the wake of COVID. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. William McDonald described that the overwhelming number of coronavirus deaths as a tide that overtook them. It created a sense of anonymity with death, given the scope. And this inability to truly memorialize people in a personal and individual way has spawned a lot of offshoot projects that seek to robustly tell the story of the individuals lost. Yeah. I mean, so many people died. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a lot of these outlets were just getting flooded in a way where they were turning people away. Yeah. We can't include your loved one's obituary. We're at capacity. Yeah. Just so morbid and tragic. Very. Um, The New York Times has also come under scrutiny and struggled with the old white men problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what this means is that their obituary section has historically honored almost exclusively old white men. And you might have an inkling or you might be wondering, why is this? <laughs> uh, let's cue Marguerite Fox again. She's this, the best. <laughs> this wonderful woman. Um, yeah, she says, quote, ask me again and another generation. The harsh reality is that the only people who were allowed to be actors on the world stage 40, 50, 60 years ago were overwhelmingly white men. 
Which, yeah, that tracks. It does. <laughs> the people in power now are dying, that were in power 50 years ago are now dying. They're dying. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. even if you go to just kind of the obituary page in the New York Times, let me see here. Let's go to it. Let's see. So even like just looking through the time section on the obituaries, and these are kind of like celebrity obituaries to an extent. I'm seeing a few women. Joan uh, Atochella. Uh-huh. Probably butchered the pronunciation of that. Martha Diamond, a painter. So in 2018, the Times kind of wanted to to change this. They were like, we don't want to be seen as the newspaper of old white dead men. (laughs) So they introduced this software called the Obits Diversity Analysis Tool. And the point of it was to highlight and memorialize more women and people of color. The goal was to achieve a yearly 30% representation of women by March of 2019. And from there, starts to measure and increase the representation of people of color. And apparently, of course, there was some internal eye rolling about this from, you guessed it, old white men. Ah. Which, mm-hmm. they, you know, it was, apparently there were, you know, smart, snarky comments being made internally about like, oh, well, we need more women dead today and stuff like that. Okay. Because, of course. But how has that project played out in the years since? Find out more after a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's the new year and we are all still thinking about our resolutions that we maybe made or felt insecure about making. We get fixated on becoming this new person overnight. Yes, instead of recognizing the things that we're already doing, right? Yes, because positive change comes from consistent incremental changes. You have to work at it, right, Jess? You really do. And that's where I have found that therapy has helped a lot for myself, pointing out my strengths and helping me stick to small improvements every day. Yeah, it's little goals. Um, so you don't have to make these like extreme grandiose resolutions and then maybe set yourself up for failure. Oh, yeah. That's I think the biggest resolution in my own mind recently has just been like these small little goals that will help aid a larger goal. Like there's a certain situation that I'm actually going to therapy about right now that is a big one, uh, a big situation that I'm trying to work through. But all the little small things that I'm learning to work through it eventually over time will help contribute to like the overall easing of the problem that seems so big and so Mm -hmm. overwhelming. Yeah. You have to compartmentalize it, break it down. And then yeah. tackle it that way. And, and a therapist can really help you get perspective and do that. Oh, for sure. Like, and, and even providing tools, like they're not going to solve the issues for you, but they're going to provide you tools that help you see things in a different way. And, and perspective is everything as well. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, if you are thinking of trying therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. Oh, yeah. They're entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just get started by filling out a brief questionnaire, and then they match you with a licensed therapist. And you can still switch therapists at any time. So celebrate the progress you have already made. Visit BetterHelp.com 30MM to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com 30MM. This episode is sponsored by Factor. Speaking of New Year's goals, though, one thing I am trying to do is trying to find ways to make my regular routine a little easier. I'll tell you what, Jess, I'm also trying to make my body a little bit regular (laughs) by changing (laughs) what I eat, too. Uh, You know, and that's cutting out stress and all that. But I I do think that, yeah, so much of my day is made better or ruined by what I eat. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, yes, I, exactly. I totally understand what you mean. Same mm-hmm. here. That's something I'm kind of figuring out myself. Um, one thing that makes eating right easier for me is Factor's ready-to-eat meals. Factor is an easy way to skip the grocery store. I don't like going to the grocery store. I don't want to go. And I don't want to cook either. <laughs> I just want to eat, okay? And Factor is also cheaper than takeout. Uh, for sure. Um, I like to go to the grocery store when I want to get, like, bad food for myself because yes. I'm like, look at this plethora of wonderfully bad yes. food. But not uh-huh. when I want to eat healthy. But thankfully, Factor, they have truly got everything I need for the entire week. It's good for me. It's delicious. It's delivered straight to my door. So I always have something to eat that tastes great and has actual nutrients in it for me. And uh, yes, I use Factor. Um, I get a box every week and it has saved me in moments of where I am busy um, or I can't take a break, anything. I just throw it in there. I think it takes about two minutes to heat up and I'm eating an actually nutritious meal, which is, it's so hard because when you are in a rush or you don't have time to do anything, it's always the bad food that you go to. Yep. Yes, because your brain always defaults to like the base level of thing you can eat. And the easiest, the, like yes, uh, the processed easiest. foods. Whereas Factor, over 35 meals to choose from every week, you can choose from your needs. So dietary needs, whether that's keto, vegan, veggie, calorie smart. Oh, yeah. Protein uh, mm-hmm. heavy. It's great. It's super quick. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. But if you're looking for a meal for a fancy occasion, well, 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 they have options there too with their Gourmet Plus. Mmm, fancy. And look, they've also got energy bites, veggie sides, and extra protein. So there's a little extra fuel when things get a little frantic. So get rid of that extra stress in the kitchen this year with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Head to factormeals.com slash 30MM50 and use code 30MM50 to get 50% off. That's code 30MM50 at factormeals.com slash 30MM50 to get 50% off. So we were wondering how the Times project has played out in the years since their diversity initiative. If you go to the Times obituary page, you'll find there is this regularly updated section titled Overlooked, mm-hmm. which is fascinating and so cool. And in this section, women and people of color are posthumously honored. So they they may have died, someone may have died, you know, 10 years ago or 100 years ago, but they're revisiting them because they were important and had an impact and they're saying, let's memorialize them. Yeah, and they're putting it in ink on the mm-hmm. internet, yeah. you know? That's, <laughs> in ink I on mean, the internet. <laughs> you know, and it's just, I mean, we yeah. as humans, we love we love legacy. We all want a legacy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's important. I mean... It's important now. Granted, when I'm dead and when we're all dead, maybe it's not as important, but it's important now. So. Yeah. And I think like we've talked about reading obituaries about people is really interesting because they do read like biographies now. Mm-hmm. And it can get boring just to read the same obituary again, which is he was a rich guy from a rich family and he made a lot of money mm-hmm. and he was able to make more generational wealth. Like you want to read about like this woman who was an artist against all odds. And, yeah. you know, you want to like you want those stories. And um, this is going to sound almost awful but reading these stories can can also like inspire you in different yes. ways and c- could potentially be um creative material yeah <laughs> sounds really no, yeah. bad <laughs> you know i mean because you know i mean really when you're writing a script and you're like okay i'm gonna write a character bio yeah you're essentially writing a, a biography for your character 
Straight up. And so, yeah, the nuances of someone's life could serve as material hey. for a kiss. That's an interesting way of looking at it, Jess. I've that's, also, that's where my mind to it. <laughs> yeah. I've also seen the the thinking, and this is something that maybe maybe your therapist will tell you to do. Okay. But imagine what your obituary would be. Oh, because, boy. you know, it gives you perspective on your life. If you who are very alive now or, and in the throes of your life think how... What would I want to be in my obituary? It might tell you like, oh, well, I'm not leading the life that will get me to the obituary I want to have. Oh, my God. You've just dropped. Right? You've just dropped we some sh- shit on me. We should be writing our own obituaries, I think. Oh, boy. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm literally, I'm staring at my desk, my eyes wide open like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I also think reading someone else's obituary and seeing how they're remembered and you go, well, I'm not going to get, rem-. not that everybody needs to have some kind of you know, grandeur aspirations, but Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thinking like, well, they're being remembered this way. And I would want someone to remember me that way too. Yeah, you're right. And that's even, even in a way of like, okay, well, I didn't, there wasn't, like you said, some grand thing that I did in my life. Yeah, you don't have to climb Everest. No. Will I be remembered? Like, will people remember me as like, she was there for me when I needed her. Yeah. Like she was always, I'm like, okay, fuck yeah. Yeah, I can do that. Totally. uh, Totally. Yeah. But did she set healthy boundaries? <laughs> she was always spread way too thin. Yeah. Like, God, that's that's what I don't want them to she say. She worked really, really hard. Oh, damn it. No, that, we're working against that. Not doing that anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, overall, the tone of an obituary has changed so much. Perhaps best said by Robert White over at The Guardian. He said, it needs to be a story rather than a monument. The best way an obituary can respectfully reflect a subject is by presenting an informative account that pulls readers through to the end before they even know it. I love that. Yeah. And sometimes the most gangster way to get that best story <laughs> is to go straight to the source. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, that's right. You're interviewing someone for their own obituary, which... Sounds pretty morbid. Maybe. I don't think so. I don't think so. Alden Whitman didn't think so either. He was the chief obituary writer at the Times in the 60s and 70s, and he made an art form of sitting down with his future subjects. I love it. I love that. Because it it is an art. After learning about it, it's like, this is incredible. But yeah, he traveled the world to do it. And Whitman found, uh, Whitman would find creative ways to get his interviewees to talk, such as telling them that the Times was merely quote, updating their, I don't know why I'm going into an accent, but uh, he would tell them, you know, um, that they were trying to just get a quote, like updating their biographical file. Yeah. Almost (laughs) euphemistically say, you know, oh, we just want to, we just want to put this on file for you. Yeah. He interviewed former president Harry S. Truman, who he smelled Whitman coming from a mile away. And he said, (laughs) I know why you're here and I want to help you all I can. Damn, that's Which, that's a gangster move right there. It is. <laughs> I, I how do you feel about being the prospect of being interviewed for your own obituary, Jess? Well, first off, I would definitely want you to interview me. If anybody, <gasps> it would be you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, first off, because you are an incredible writer, you wouldn't be weirded out by the morbidity of it all because girl, that's what you're about. My my um, questions would be like that office joke where I'm like. Question one, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? <laughs> and what gives you the right? Yes. 
Yeah. Um, I think as of right now, I, I, I'd be like, ah, oh, please don't interview me because A, there's a lot I still want to do with my life and B, I'm hoping that you don't need it anytime soon. But at the same time, like we talked about earlier, sometimes life isn't fair and you just die randomly. Um, you and I, I are flying by the seats of our pants. No obituaries, no wills. We don't. We have nothing. <laughs> we have nothing. We'll oh take boy. it as it comes. Yeah, yeah. I think you would be an amazing because you have such you ask such great questions. Oh boy, I'd get in there. You yes. know it. You would be. Uh, anyone would be so privileged to have you ask them about their life. Oh, I would love it. And I and I just would be wanting to continue to dive even further too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I. The question you asked earlier, you know, when, when talking about pre-written, it's just like thinking about it, it really does make you question your own life right now. And and what would be in it? Would you be happy with the obituary written when you are gone? Well, and, and here, here's a question too. Like, could you, do you think that you would downplay your accomplishments? Could you give a, a fair assessment of your own life? It's, it's so what, when you're saying this right now, the first thing that's coming to my brain is I when you say accomplishments, my brain immediately went to career. But then mm-hmm. as soon as my brain went to career, it went to, oh, that doesn't matter. Yeah. And I immediately thought of like my loved ones, my family and happy moments. And it, mm-hmm. in career went right out the window, which is very telling. <laughs> um, but yeah. at the same time, part of that, part of accomplishments and career also play a role in affecting other people for the better, such as the whole reason I got into the industry that I am in, um, just telling stories in whatever form that may be, movies, podcasts, television, writing, whatever, is to move people and to take them away from their, I don't know, mundane life for two hours at a time and bring them into another world or make them feel something they haven't felt before. So in that way, that would be really great. But when it comes to like, oh, I made a oh, I, I made 200K or I won an Oscar. Well, that's cool. That's not where my mind is going when I'm thinking about my obituary right now. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot. Like, I just said a no, lot right No, I understand right what you mean. It's like, it's like, sure, she she made that movie, but what was the lasting impact of that movie? Correct. How did it change other people? Yes. While it might've gotten me fame and money and all that, that really just is not screaming at me right now because in the end, it doesn't matter, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I think it would be really cool to be interviewed for your own obituary. At this age right now? No, I am I am agree with with you. I mm-hmm. think you'd have to do it in a, I would say, meet me every five years and let's uh, talk. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> love that. I love it. And we'll we'll get for down to business. Yeah. Because, yeah. And I, I also think there's something to be interesting to be said for the things that you think are important right now versus talk to me 20 years from now and I might have a whole different, the things that I said to you 20 years ago, I might go, I can't believe I thought that was important to put in my obituary. And that, but, and that alone right there, Elise, if you were meeting with somebody every five years is an incredible thing to put down as in like age, uh, you know, mid thirties, uh, this is what she said versus 20 years later after learning, oh, that never really mattered. Or this yeah. is actually what matters this is incredible. Yeah. For sure. And, and I also think that the questions were, th- I don't think that they probably asked such point blank questions, whoever's doing these interviews. I think they probably asked questions that wouldn't ha- necessarily, they wouldn't mean that you have to say, oh yeah, I won this award. Mm-hmm. They'd probably ask much, much more like nuanced questions. And also if you look, if you watch that obit documentary, mm-hmm. you'll get glimpses of some of the reporters on the phone with surviving kin and they're asking 
really direct and pointed questions about certain stuff. I love that. That's great. They're asking a widow about her dead husband's uh, ex-wife. You know, wow. and it's Damn. it's interesting, but okay, yeah, you've convinced me. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people who think there is no greater honor than being interviewed for their own obituary. Um, Kitty Carlisle Hart, who was an actress, opera singer, and lead in the Marx Brothers movie Night at the Opera, she died in 2007. But she was so happy some years before to learn that a Times reporter was working on her obituary. She would even reach out to them and say, <laughs> "Oh, hey, this new thing happened to me." Put it, put it in my file. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that. I like that. It, it It's also like, you, you know, making sure you got my, um, you have my legacy down, down packed. Mm-hmm. It's on yeah. lock. You can control a little bit. For sure. Yeah. Um, Albin Krebs, another Times obituaryist, uh, interviewed actress Betty Davis for hers. Yeah. And apparently that interview started out pretty tame, but then Davis kind of started to realize what was going on because mm-hmm. you cannot pull the wool over Betty Davis's eyes. Mm-mm, okay. mm-mm. No, mm-hmm. she's, uh, she knows what's going on. Yeah. yeah. She apparently said to Krebs, may I ask you a question? You spent an awful lot of time asking me questions that you couldn't possibly be using in this article. He told her he liked to be thorough, but she pressed him and asked, by any chance, are you interviewing me for my obituary? <laughs> Krebs, he admitted to it. And so then in the most Betty Davis thing ever, she disappeared and then came back with some martinis and said, okay, let's like really get down to this. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And it would seem that most people are, are generally fairly eager to have a hand in shaping their lasting legacy and not that creeped out by the idea. Uh, Alfred Noble, uh, well, he wasn't too keen. Oh, sorry. Alfred Noble uh, wasn't interviewed for his obituary. However, like Marcus Garvey, who we mentioned at the top of the show, there is a chance he did accidentally read his own while he was still alive. There's a myth that in a mix-up revolving around Noble's brother's death, a French newspaper mistakenly printed Alfred's in his place, scathingly describing the scientist as the merchant of death due to his contributions like the invention of dynamite. Yeah, so Noble allegedly read this. And then this perspective on his legacy totally rocked his world. He was upset by it. And so the story goes that this is what motivated him to institute the Nobel Prize as well as his foundation. Again, we should take all this with a grain of salt since there's no conclusive evidence. But yeah, this is just all Internet speculation mm-hmm. and trying to put the one, you know, one and one equals two sort of thing. But we don't mm-hmm. know for sure. He never said Yeah. Um, But here's a question that might be rolling around in your brain when it comes to the subject of advanced obituaries, which is what happens when the subject of a pre-written obituary outlives the obituary writer? That's actually happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's called a post-mortem byline. So when the writer shuffles off this mortal coil before their piece goes to print. Mm -hmm. Michael Kaufman, a formal correspondent and editor for The Times, died in 2010 but his contributions recently appeared in Henry Kissinger's obituary. And he also contributed to Osama bin Laden's. All the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, former New York Times theater critic Mel Gousseau died in 2005, but he's received bylines posthumously for Harold Pinter and Elizabeth Taylor. And I think in kind of a poetic way, almost like getting that credit, it's sort of, it's, an, it's a memorial to like, the person who recently died, but then also 
bringing the writer who died back into the conversation. Mm-hmm. In Which a is way, yeah. In a weird, beautiful and slightly yeah. morbid way. You know, yeah. it's all tied together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My personal stance, I think it is a necessary means to truly honor and encapsulate someone's life in a deserving way. If you feel like you need to compete with these rapid speed news cycles and the day of no, like the day of model doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And this is what these outlets need to do. I think Mm -hmm. it's better than trying to just like spit out something that doesn't fully do a person justice. Yeah. And even, and even if you aren't of a celebrity status um, and you're just a normal Joe, um, I, I think even for your own descendants and family, having control of that is is worth it if you want to. Again, there are plenty of people. I, I can think of a family member right now that she'd be like, oh, I don't care what you write about me. You know, like she's yeah. like, what you put whatever in there. But then at the same time, um, you know, what what will your kids think and your grandkids and so on and so forth read about your life? Mm-hmm. And what do you want them to know about you if you can't be there to uh, say it? Yeah. So. And I think also, even if you don't know someone, an, a, rel- a well-written obituary can be looked at by future generations as a kind of a time capsule too. Yes. Yep. In a cool way. A very cool way. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, this is not something I thought about, uh, obviously until we've done this episode and, um, I'm going to go interview my parents now. I'm going to be like, look, all right, guys, let's talk. <laughs> They're going to be like, Jesus, uh, I'm not dead yet or there yet. I mean, uh, maybe it'd be, they would find it sweet that you, you want to know that so that yeah, you can uh, pay them tribute that way. You know, let's just get into the nitty gritty. But this, this is great. I love this episode. Yeah. I want to be interviewed for my obituary. But like in a between two ferns, Zach Galifianakis style. God, that would be that is that is incredible. That yeah. would be the best way to to get that interview. Yeah. Um, what would be a question that you'd want them to ask you? And in, in the between two ferns, Galifianakis style. He'd probably say something like, "So, uh, when did you start wearing wigs?" Okay. And then I'd have to go. I don't wear wigs. Then he'd okay. say like, "Oh." <laughs> and he'd make a face. Yeah. Or do you <laughs> think go, like... What does that mean? Yeah. No, yeah. Well, I don't think this was a morbid episode. I think it was pretty uplifting. Hey, you're right. Perspective's everything. I think it was uplifting too. But for the good juicy stuff, <laughs> listen to us every week and support us directly through 30mm.show slash first. Yeah, that, that goes a long way. If you guys want to support us directly, we would really, really appreciate it at that mm-hmm. link that Elise just said, 30mm.show slash first. Super mm-hmm. helpful. And um, we are all over socials, but well, specifically Instagram and, and uh, TikTok at 30 Morbid Minutes. So um, share with your friends, find out some cool uh, tidbits of morbid facts. Well, I have to go uh, start putting some notes down, Jess. Me too. I have a lot of stuff to write now that I was an astronaut and I went to Mars five times. Let me just see her. Liked big butts, cannot lie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Actually, wouldn't that be funny to kind of like fake do one and then that information goes down to your descendants? Like, oh, she she went to Mars seven times. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, bad bye, Elise. Bad bye, Jessica. (laughs) 